I'm Chara Santilli. I was born with ambition. My parents were entrepreneurs and I pushed myself to be high school valedictorian, class president, most artistic, and most likely to succeed. The summer I turned 19, we celebrated my dad's 50th birthday with a hot air balloon ride. A crash landing left him with a broken neck, me with a broken heart, and my mom coping through alcohol. My relentless ambition helped me become a successful entrepreneur, yet my own private paralysis and overachiever addiction ruled me. I finally ventured on a quest for my best life. I found the path of my inner peace, how to stay on it and how to show the way for others. Now it's your turn. Ready to take that load off your shoulders? Join me so you can cherish your life. Today, the day this episode goes live, is the 28th anniversary of my family's hot air balloon accident. I thought it would be a good timing to share with you some details about that day and the aftermath and a few reflections I have on it. So it happened the summer before I turned 19. I had just completed one year of college and I was home for the summer. The hot air balloon ride was a surprise gift my mom and I had planned for the night before my dad's 50th birthday. He'd already been on a balloon ride himself in Kansas years before, and he'd always wanted to take us for a ride. Five of us plus the pilot, there was a max allowance of seven people, so we had six total. It was me, my mom, dad, my brother Kirk, and his wife Kelly. And we met the pilot about two and a half hours before sunset. This was in the Tri-Cities, southeastern Washington state. And it's very much um, desert there, farm fields out where we were doing this, very different than the west side of the state, the Seattle area that so many people know about in Washington. So very desert, very flat, different area. The ride and the whole experience was going to be about two and a half to three hours total. And there were two women that came along with him that are referred to as the chasers. And they basically track us with the van that brings the hot air balloon and track us to pick us up and then have everything ready for a champagne toast at the end of the ride. It was a really hot day in our area. Eastern Washington and summertime can get above 100 and it was 107 that day. The ride was really iffy due to the heat and it was a little breezy too. There was some discussion about the pilot staying overnight and us rescheduling for the morning, but eventually the breeze died down and the heat lessened a little. So we moved over to a new liftoff spot, another place that he'd taken off from before in our area, and we went for the ride. It was a really beautiful ride. I do have a memory of seeing people's smiles, and I remember seeing my father stand and smiling at me and looking out over the vistas. So we had this lovely ride. Yes, it was hot and a little uncomfortable, but it was a lovely ride. And we came down for the landing. And the first try, we bounced, kind of hit the ground a little hard. So there was some turbulence, basically, you know, due to the extreme temperatures that day and the little bit of breeze and stuff that was going on. I remember my dad directing us to the corners. So the pilot was in the center, holding on to the center thing where the fire, I, I can't remember how it exactly looked in the center, but he was in the center. And then my dad directed us to the corner. So mom, me, Kirk and Kelly. And then my dad was kind of on the 
trying to hang on to one of the four sides of the basket. We came down for a second try for the landing, and that's when my dad fell out. I do have a memory of seeing him falling out of the basket and kind of like up against the basket when it was kind of tilted on its side and the ground was right there. So at some point, somehow, right about that time, he fell out. His foot got caught on a cord and he was drug on the ground through, you know, these farm fields, alfalfa, corn, that kind of thing. And I do remember seeing him hanging upside down in the air and felt like he was very far away from us, but he was hanging upside down by his one leg. And I think someone cut the cord and then we were able to land the next try. I remember I pretty much just immediately went into shrieking, screaming, crying, sobbing, panic. And we ran over to him. My sister-in-law was a nurse. So she checked him and guided people on turning him over because he was face down. And I think he was having trouble breathing in that position too. And I think he was saying like, turn me over, turn me over because he was having trouble. So he was conscious. He looked really beat up. And as I said, I was initially immediately very emotional. Everybody else seemed to go into that initial shock emergency state, which I think is more common for adults. You know, keep in mind, I was about to turn 19. I was younger and my brother's seven years older and his wife seven years older than me and then my mom and the pilot. So my dad, <laughs> oh, he uh, has always had a great sense of humor. So he didn't want to see his little girl upset. So like seriously, of all times, he was able to crack a joke. And he said to me, you should see the other guy <laughs> as if he'd gotten in a fight. Oh, my God. Um, just going to gather myself for a sec. So we got to the hospital and I had gotten myself together emotionally to be in a little bit of a calmer state. And then what I did is I resorted to a really get down to business mode. I dove into making phone calls. I called our family, my aunt and uncle, my mom's sister and her husband and my grandparents, my mom's parents and my dad's relatives too, and friends and people who worked for my parents. There were so many people who came to the hospital that night, I remember. Because I should give you a little backstory here. My parents were very much leaders in the community. They had built a business from scratch. It's called Pasta Mamas. My mom was Pasta Mama. And it was a gourmet pasta line with over 30 flavors. It was back in the 80s. And that was a really novel idea then. It was, you know, they were like cutting edge in food creativity in, in this way. It started in our kitchen about seven years earlier. And I was raised watching them as like hardcore entrepreneurs, like seriously dedicated entrepreneurs, literally building a, a business out of our kitchen. And they'd worked really hard. And at this point, at the time of the accident, they had over 30, maybe even close to 40 employees. They were awarded Washington State Small Business of the Year recently before that. 
so that it, it was not surprising that they had so much support in the community. I mean, people knew them. And part of the business, too, was a huge, beautiful retail store in the front of the manufacturing plant that was a like a, a landmark in our area. I mean, people went there to get beautiful gift baskets and lovely, neat gifts my mom would find and, and be able to, um, you know, display in, in amazing ways, you know, tons of Christmas trees at the time of Christmas. I mean, she was, had a, such a knack for decorating and presenting things uh, just in beautiful ways. So anyway, we had a lot of support and people who wanted to be at the hospital for my dad and for us. And I remember feeling a little calmer once I started making those calls. And basically, it was like I got into the zone of managing the crisis, managing the chaos. It gave me something to do. So I stayed really busy and I focused on the tasks of calling people, coordinating, updating them, coordinating to have my aunt and uncle and grandparents drive down the next morning, all these things. I tried to take things off my mom's plate. And, you know, looking back now, I can see this way of being definitely gave me an illusion of control. And that was the beginning of a pattern. It was the beginning of a life coping mechanism for me to get busy, to get to work. You know, that was the way I could stay safe, not facing my emotions, but distracting myself with tasks as a busy bee. And not that it's a bad thing to do this. I mean, there's a place and time for things. And of course, this certainly was a time to be able to get myself in a place where I could make phone calls and do something like this. I mean, it's not that it was bad. It's just that looking back, I can see how this was the beginning of an unhealthy pattern, though, because I took it to an extreme for many years after. So that's the emotional side of things for me and kind of just the initial how I coped. Uh, physically, I did have actual whiplash. Uh, I remember seeing a chiropractor and stuff, but also there was the fear response of my system, which led to chronic tension that I'm still unwinding layers of now. 28 years later, it's been an ongoing process for me. My body was clearly trying to protect me. It has been, still is to some degree, by staying tense. Or if I get relaxed, going tense easily, kind of a simple access point to get there fast, because this is what I have come to understand about my body. In that tension, it, it feels like it's holding strong trying to fight to stay in control and literally bracing for impact. So it's always on alert and ready for the next crisis in this way. Fortunately, I have been able to make a lot of progress with my whole system, emotionally and physically, through a lot of different modalities that I've explored over the last 25 years, really. And I'll be sharing more about that in future episodes of the podcast. But back to that night, though, my dad's heart did stop at some point. So there was a moment, well, more than a moment. There was a while, a period of time. I don't remember how long, but I, I do remember we weren't sure if there was going to be brain damage. There wasn't, thankfully. So I'll, you know, let me tell you that now. What happened was he was then flown 
to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, which is on the other side of the state. And that night, I remember my brother and sister-in-law staying at our house downstairs. None of us slept much, as you can imagine. I just, you know, it's interesting, the little things you remember. I just remember like Kelly and I going to bed with wet hair like that in just kind of a dark house. And um, we probably didn't want to really look around much either because we had the house prepped. My mom had everything ready for a big 50th birthday party that was going to be the next day on dad's actual birthday. I think by this point, she had already picked up the cake that had a hot air balloon on it and was in one of the fridges and, you know, had literally decorations and everything like ready to go. Anyway, the next morning, I remember some of my girlfriends coming over and helping me pack, you know, some of them that were in town for the summer, plus a very close friend of mine who lived there year round and right next to our house. And I remember spinning in circles a bit and in a daze, standing in front of my closet. And I specifically remember looking at three flowy long dresses my mom had gotten me. I was going to wear one of those to dad's birthday party that day. There was a local pilot with his own small plane who flew me and family up to Seattle that day. And we stayed in a hotel for a month or so. And then eventually my mom got an apartment up there because dad was at Harborview, I think for about six months. So mom got an apartment and she would sneak our sweet little quiet Shih Tzu dog Callie in and out because I remember I don't think the dog was allowed, if I remember correctly, uh, and kind of slim picks to, and she really wanted that company because I do remember my father was really adamant that I would go back to school, go back to college, because I was at that point about to be a sophomore, second year of my college. Fortunately, my college campus was one hour drive away from that hospital because I happened to be going to school nearby at University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. I was definitely a changed person when I went back to school. Going back to college at the end of the summer was, well, <laughs> I remember all my classmates, you know, greeting each other and the classic, how was your summer line? You know how everybody just always says, you know, how are you doing? And kind of all those things. Well, this was the, how was your summer? And I was uh, brutally honest. <laughs> I'm laughing because I mean, I just remember, I just can't imagine being on the other side of me at that time. So I would get asked, how was your summer? And I remember standing there and saying, and I kid you not, it was the worst summer of my life. We were in a hot air balloon accident and my father was paralyzed. Like, seriously, can you imagine somebody saying that to you? Just out of the blue when everybody's like, oh, it was awesome. You know, like, Yes, great. And this happened, that happened. And I'm so happy to be back here. No, mine was this like slap you upside the head. What did she just say? So I would be honest with anybody who asked me. I don't know where that came from necessarily, meaning I just was so compelled. I could not put on the fake face. I could not just say, fine. And, you know, there's something about the culture that we live in, at least here in the U.S. and I think in a lot of the world, that there's this fake, you know, got to put on this face and this 
like I said, the common question that is in our daily life now, I would say is, you know, how was your weekend? How are you doing? And everybody's like, oh, great, fine. You know, rarely are people very honest. And so there's a part of me that actually would love for the world to be more honest in how they're really doing. I think it would serve us well. And yet there is a point. <laughs> there is. I think I took it to an extreme. So <laughs> I, uh, but boy, just that's how I felt. And that's what came out of my mouth. So something I've learned from many of my mentors is that if you look deep enough, and if you wait long enough, because sometimes it takes a while, you can get to a place emotionally where you can find the gifts and the opportunities that lie even in the darkest moments of life. And in regards to the accident, I have been able to find a few of those. Now, I want to preface this by saying this does not mean that the accident was a good thing. I certainly would have preferred it had never happened. Yet, it did. And I have found it a much better way to live, much more empowering way to live if I continue to seek out the good that does come from the bad. So there's three gifts I have been able to find. Number one, meeting my husband, Don, 27 years ago. I met him the spring after the accident, well, I guess winter after the accident. I had not planned on joining a sorority, but a few friends encouraged me to go through Rush and join theirs. They really thought it would be good for me to have a community like that because I was definitely in a deep emotional funk. Thanks to that decision, I met my husband that winter and because our sorority and his fraternity did a lot of things together. And we started dating in the spring. We flirted on the dance floor for about six months before we said a word to each other, though. And I remember some of our classmates saying that it was quite entertaining to watch us because we seriously did not say a word to each other. And side note, very important little note here, neither of us was drunk. He was focused on his grades in order to pursue his goal of becoming an orthodontist. And I was never a drinker. You know, in high school, I really had no desire. And my closest friends were not drinkers. And we just were really good girls. We just didn't do any of that. And at this point, after the accident, I'd started to see that drinking was a coping mechanism for my mom. So although I don't think it was a conscious decision, I do think it was influenced by what I was seeing with her. And I do think that's part of why I did avoid it. Now, the second gift is that I met my therapist, Helen, 25 years ago. She helped me to process the accident and the challenging years that followed, especially navigating mom's alcoholism and my parents that went through bankruptcy, including losing their home and their business within a few years of the accident, because there's huge ramifications for an accident like that, as you can imagine. And it did lead to a lot of hardship. She also became like family to me. And the third gift is that about 10 years ago, I was processing a new layer of grief around the accident 
when I met my first coach, Rhonda Britton, the founder of Fearless Living, which is where I later got my own coaching certification. So now here I am as a coach and mentor myself with my own programs and this podcast through my business, Cherish Your Life. Because of what my family went through and the path it took me on, I am now using my experiences to help others heal from their own traumas, big or small, that have pushed them into unhealthy coping mechanisms of becoming busy worker bees at the expense of their health and happiness. I so appreciate you tuning in to listen, and I hope you continue on this journey with me because we're just getting started. I hope I'm helping you in some way through this podcast, and I want you to know that you are helping me. Every time I share, every time I teach, and every time I coach, another piece of me heals in that process. I have one request for you today. Would you please be willing to share this podcast with a few of your friends? I want to help as many people as I can to feel better. I want them to experience more joy. I want you to experience more joy. I want more people to find their way to more peace of mind. And if you want help taking your first step to better life balance, I've got another way to support you. Go check out my free training at cherisyourlife.com forward slash free training. My closing quote for today is by Tyler Knott Gregson. We are the silver lining in any and every dark cloud we could ever find. There is no need to go looking for the light when you bring it with you. I hope you're enjoying my Cherish Your Life podcast. If this is supporting you in any way, please review, subscribe, and share it with friends and family. You can follow me on social media at Cherish Your Life, and my website is cherishyourlife.com. Yep, my name's unique. Here's an easy tip for you to pronounce and spell it. It's like the city, Paris, but with a CH. Special thanks to my dear friend, Paul Suyelgis, who enhanced and mixed the musical track. Little did we know back in college in the 90s, while my then boyfriend, now husband, and I listened to Paul riff on his guitar, that he'd be helping me decades later give a creative touch to something called a podcast. <laughs>